With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing the Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, Oscar fans, we are chatting with the great Jack Matthews, who has covered the Oscar beat as a journalist longer than just about anybody I know. I'm Tom O'Neill, yeah. Gold Derby Jack. Give us your resume. <laughs> well, I started covering the Oscars in 1979 when I moved to, from Detroit to Los Angeles covering uh, Hollywood for Detroit Free Press. Mm-hmm. And then I went from the Detroit Free Press, the USA Today, to the LA Times, all in Los Angeles, and covering the Oscars very intimately. Mm-hmm. And then I moved to New York and working for the New York uh, Newsday and New York Daily News, and I continued to cover the Oscars, came out there usually um, during the run-up to the awards to talk to people and see what was going on, keep up with old sources. I mean, that was back when I was working in Hollywood. You know, I had I had so many sources in the academy, which you know journals working there now do. Yeah, sure. And um, but it was a lot more informative then. There weren't all these other awards, and there weren't all the other people interviewing these people. I, you know, there were only a handful of us doing that, and uh, yeah. so it meant a lot. You know. I used to be able to go through the foreign language categories and the short film categories by talking to people that were on those committees and be pretty have a pretty good idea how they were going to vote, how the Academy as a whole was going to vote. But that's all changed now. It's a little different. Yeah, very different. Just before we segue into this year's Oscars, uh, give us some reflections on, you know, great memories you had in the past of just, you know, fun moments or real insights. I'll, I'll give you one example. The great Joel Siegel once told me, and he was a Gold Derby expert with you and I going back, what, 15 years ago. Yeah. He yeah. said, uh, oh, the, the thing that shocked me when I first started being there and covering it was, uh, he said, several times I caught guys in the men's room during the show vomiting. He said, and the wow. stench of vomit <laughs> in the men's room, he said, was really overpowering. He said, it didn't happen once. It happened three times over the years. I, I saw it go, that was, do you have any really shocking memories? <laughs> <laughs> well, not like that. I do, you know, I have, um, I have some memories of incidents, you know, back, backstage, for instance, uh, the year that uh, Kramer versus Kramer won Best Picture. And mm-hmm. uh, Dustin Hoffman, who won Best Actor, came, uh, yeah, came into the, um, was nothing. Yeah, Dustin Hoffman came into backstage and, um, He's talking to um, Rona Barrett. Remember Rona Barrett? Sure, yeah, right? the remember her? Yeah. yeah. And uh, anyway, Rona had apparently attacked that film frequently and called it a soap opera. And Dustin Hoffman, I've never seen anybody smirking so broadly as he looked at her <laughs> and reminded her <laughs> how smart she wasn't. You know. Another another memory I had was uh, you know the year that Ronald Reagan was shot and they postponed the Oscars for a week. Um, Robert De Niro won Best Actor, and you know he was the guy that shot um, Reagan had a fixation on Jodie Foster from mm-hmm. Taxi Driver, so there was all that connection. And of course, you know he had to have known that that was going to be question was going to come up, but he acted like as if he didn't because Bob Thomas, the AP, first question when he got into the press room was. Uh, how do you feel about that, you know, taxi driver, blah, blah, blah. And Robert De Niro just looked at him and said, I'm sure you're all nice people, dropped the mic and left the room. <laughs> wow. So how could, so that, that was, how could he be unprepared for that inevitable question? I know. It was crazy. But he can't, he, you know, he really, he was just an awful interview, as you probably know. Um, people can't, he just couldn't talk very well. And he didn't, he was always uneasy. 
at you know yeah. around uh, journalists, and so we, I think he just probably just got brain freeze at that point. But yeah. you know, I get another little uh, an anecdote which isn't quite a revealer, but back in 1969, I was <clears throat> writing it for the Riverside Press Enterprise out in the desert there. But I was a big movie movie lover, you know, and I'd been watching the Oscars and doing Oscar pools as long as I could remember. So I wrote to the Academy. Could never do that today, but I wrote to the Academy to <clears throat> see if I get credentials for the Oscars, and lo and behold, I got them. So I went there with another friend from the paper, another Oscar junkie, and I, we had no idea that we were supposed to wear tuxedos. I, I actually, I actually had a was wearing a brown suit. And, well, not um, even a black or blue suit. You not even brown. a black or blue. I went brown. Oh, and my, my friend had a blue blazer and Levi's, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and we got there, and we immediately knew of the mistake we'd made because everybody was all dressed in the nines. But, I mean, well, we knew they dressed up, but didn't know the journalists dressed up because you only could be in the back room, right? Yeah, of figure, course. Yeah. But, anyway, we got back there, and, of course, everybody's wearing tuxedos and gowns in the press room as well. And that was the night... We just sort of tried to hide in the back of the room because we weren't we weren't really re- we weren't reporting on anything. We were just there, and um, that was the night that uh, that uh, the, the famous tie, right? And Barbara Streisand and Captain Hepburn tied oh, yeah. Yeah. that night, and um, Captain Hepburn hadn't come to the awards, but Barbara Streisand came to the back room. She was she had that famous see-through jumpsuit. Oh yeah, that Western new pussycat outfit on. Yeah. Yeah, and she, you know, she had black panties and black bra under. So that was quite a sight. We were all ogling her, but uh, <laughs> it, and then we sort of slinked out of there. Never do that again. So for all the the future Oscar shows I covered, I had my own tux and never made that mistake again. Oh, that's that's good. Uh, if you were, I'm sure you remember the, the, the great old days of John Pavlik, head of the uh, theology academy for many years. One day, uh, you know, Little Gold Derby was just my hobby site at that point, although you were contributing to it, and many prestigious people like Dave Carter and Thompson and Pete Hammond contributing their predictions going back to our, our first big year, which was 2000, which was that gladiator versus traffic year. And uh, uh, I'd put in for credentials that year and I think I was turned down whatever it was but John uh, called me one day and he said uh, uh, can we have lunch and I said sure well, great yeah the head of the academy's PR division yeah I'll, I'll find time and we went to lunch and he turned to me and he said Tom I have amazing news for you you he said Gold Derby is the very first digital media ever credentialed for the Oscars congratulations <laughs> how about oh, that? how effing cool you know <laughs> that's great yeah, yeah then, well, um, you know, for the next couple of years, yeah. Yeah. Well, you've really, uh, you know, I got to say, you've done an amazing job building this thing up. You know, we when you started that, I don't remember the first year that that w- we were with you. Was it? I mean, I, I, I remember Gene Seymour. I think was in our little group there for a while. So that was the first year because. Uh, and by the way, anyone listening to this podcast, Jack played a uh, played a pivotal role in Gold Derby because uh, he had. I had already lined up people I knew, like Pete Hammond and, and, and Thompson and, and those types, but I didn't know a lot of the New York crowd. And uh, Jack had me drop by his office at the New York Daily News. You did a full-page article on my book on movie awards that had just been published by Variety yeah. and by uh, uh, Penguin Putnam. And uh, <laughs> so and I got a very, very, very prestigious profile written by the great Jack Matthews at the Daily News. And uh, you, as I was leaving after our interview, you turned to me and said, hey, you know, the New York Film Critics event is like in a couple of weeks. Do you want to go? And I went, yeah. And you, and, and, uh, you said, okay, well, uh, I'll get you in as my guest. So I went, and it was thanks to you. And, and I was working the room, and all of a sudden I turned. I recognized Thelma Adams. I'd never met her. Or maybe you had introduced us, whatever it was. And she was the first person who was, and you, I had already signed you up for Cold Derby. <laughs> and Selma was the first you know, not person I didn't know at all who I just walked up to and she said yes. And then she turned hey, to Gene Seymour from Houston. Hey, Gene, you got to do this Gold Derby thing. Come over here. And <laughs> your role that year was so pivotal in getting me that the other half of the panel that was so important and is to this day. I, your, your contribution was, was epic. Jack. Well, thank you. I didn't really think of it that way, but I, you know, I really had a good time with all that, and 
It's yeah. just, you know, it plays right into my wheelhouse. I love the Oscars. And, I mean, you know, it's a, I, as a critic, I probably shouldn't be admitting that, but I like them more than, you know, I, and I actually think the Oscars are way underrated in terms of by critics. You know, every year they ta- critics attack the Oscars and everything. And I, you know, if you look back over all the years, as we always do, you know, looking back over, and I say that I was, I was a member of both the L.A. film critics and I was a member of the New York film critics, and you look back through their histories and so forth, and I would put the Oscars up against them. I don't think yeah. that, I mean, you know, there's some miscues here and there, but so are the critics have made some pretty odd choices. So um, I think the Academy, with its numbers and its, you know, and the savvy they have about film, the film business making, um you know, they just, they're underrated. I think they, have, uh, you know, they do better than... Yeah. And even some of their quote-unquote mistakes I happen to agree with, like uh, uh, Shakespeare in Love beating Saving Private Ryan. I'm sorry, but I think that was a wise choice. <laughs> I do too. And, uh, and uh, it, you know, the widely ridiculed victory of Oliver over the line winner and other prestigious films that year, um, I would agree with the New York Film Critics' choice that year, which was the line winner. But I re- recently rewatched Oliver... And I, I, I just gasped, thinking this is such a brilliant movie on on so many simple, profound levels. The music is so good. anyway. It, it's not an embarrassing choice looking back. Sometimes the critics, no, it's not. The, the critics who are critical of the Oscars are wrong, as, as you said. Yeah, I think I, I watched Oliver recently too, and I think it, I think it does stand up. Um, I think there are some years. I mean, the back to back Kramer versus Kramer and Ordinary People. I didn't get that. <laughs> those movies, those were really small movies. I thought, you know, I I always liked my Oscar to be something important, something that's going to be lasting, and uh, and I didn't think either one of those would be, and I don't think either one of them have been. Yeah. yeah. Let's look at this year. Um, give me your uh, your defense of your prediction for Best Picture as Roma. This is an award that, let's face it, Jack, the experts at Gold Derby have been wrong about a majority of times since the preferential ballot came in. That's yeah. really embarrassing for us to admit, but it's confounding this new this new procedure. And uh, so Roma's not necessarily a slam dunk here, is it? No, it is not. definitely is not. In fact, I was just writing a piece I hope to run a, you know, give you on for, uh, for Monday when the Oscar ballots arrive. In the yeah, by the way, Jack is writing frequently for Gold Derby, as I'm sure all of you know, uh, and we're... Uh, it's our, he's my, our most prestigious contributor. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, but anyway, I was just going through that thing, and I'm making the I, – I, this is what you're talking about. I was going through the whole argument about this preferential ballot and how it's changed everything. Mm-hmm. And I was really against the ex, uh, expanding the best picture ballot, and I still would I prefer it to be five. But I, but I think it was a brilliant stroke by the Academy and with the preferential ballot because what they want is mystery at the end of the show, and, boy, they've got it. Because yeah, in the last exactly. few years, it's just you don't know when that last envelope is going to open. Doesn't matter what's happened before. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I look at Roma, and, I, and exactly, I think there are some real strikes against it. N- number one being it's a Netflix movie, and it's a, you know it goes against Hollywood's way of doing business. And so a lot of people may feel personally, you know, uh, estranged from it. Put it that way. It's also a movie that divides people. Some people just you know love it so much for its. Achievement. I mean, it's a beautiful film to look at, and it's very, you know, memory piece by the Quadon. Um, but it's also a butt-numbing bore to a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, okay. but, so I would say that, you know, and I'm thinking about this right now. I mean, I, at this moment, I'm torn between Roma, which I think is the best Oscar movie because of mm-hmm. its uh, everything about it. But I don't know on that preferential ballot if that's enough. I think, um, you know, Green Book or the favorite, either one of those, and probably Green Book, is most likely to have be on more top two, three spots on the ballots than than the others. I can see Roma being down farther on a lot of ballots. Yeah, that's but, Pete Hammond's observation, talking to voters. He says there's a lot of strategic voting going on by uh, Roma detractors who will who will strategically rank it really low on their ballot just to make a point, you know, that I'm not on that bandwagon. My movie is X, you know, instead. Well, you know, that uh, um, Steve Pond over at The Wrap did a very nice piece on explaining this preferential system in which he – that kind of voting isn't going to help. You know, if you if you try to put the movie you least want to win at the bottom of your list, it really doesn't matter because it's going to get thrown mm-hmm. out anyway. But uh, the top three, those top three positions are really important. And so when you look at this list, as I was just doing, 
trying to think of myself as a voter. Um, mm-hmm. A star is born. I think it's just DOA. Uh, mm-hmm. Black Klan, Black Klansman. I think it's probably going to win the script. Uh, the Writers Guild. Yeah, but stop right there, Jeff. I have a, a thread in our message boards where I asked our thousands of users, well, what, how would you fill out the ballot? Never mind predictions for a moment. Give me your predictions. Now, I, I know that there's a lot of even separate groupthink among uh, the 5,000 people in our forums every day, and they're also showing off by just being defiant. If, if I think they're automatically not voting for Roma because that's the expected choice. They're trying to stand out. Mm-hmm. But that all that said, and I agree with you that Roma is out front, and it is my prediction, and I, I, I agree with all of your analysis. But the one thing that, that – and I'm writing an article about this today – the shock is how high consistently Black Klansman is on all of their ballots. I know. One, two, or three. I mean, it is, it's up there with Green Book on every single almost entry where, of course, uh, uh, the favorite is not. Uh, the Roma is not. Uh, Green Book is, and so is uh, Black Klansman. I don't think it's going to pull off an upset, but on the other hand, I'm very impressed by its strength uh, because the Spike Lee factor is very formidable. Yeah, it is. That's a problematic. You know, I think of um, Spike Lee has a real perception problem. You know, people he's so abrasive, he has been so abrasive in the past that uh, you know, the question now. Can they embrace him at this at long last? I think he's. I think he's up there, and that proves that he has. They have sort of embraced him. The fact that you know, as you say, he's been so strong all the way. He's been campaigning aggressively. He has been, and um, and he, he made nice at BAFTA when he gave his acceptance speech, which you know, which probably helped him. Mm-hmm. And uh, but anyway, I don't. I I, I don't think it can uh, win. I just don't think enough. Well. I just think Green Book and and the favorite are stronger than mm-hmm. Black Landsman in terms of uh, you know the preferential ballot. But mm-hmm. certainly, I don't think stars. And Black Panther's going to be on a lot of them too. You just uh, you know, it's not going to win, I don't think, but it's going to get a lot of attention. So this ballot is just going to God. I, do they actually sit down and go through eight thousand ballots and, and they have a until that, they get yeah, to fifty? Yeah, that stupid. Uh, accounting system or a ranking that is used. It's a preferential ballot used by no other uh, accounting group in the world. <laughs> it was developed back in the 1930s as this very oddball accounting procedure. And uh, uh, the way they do nominations, it's the way they do wins. And it's, um, or no, they, do they do nominations? That way? No, I think it's more of a popular. Yeah, you know, I've had this. I've been a critic of uh, the critics' group voting ever since I was a yeah, you, member. You were one time president of the L.A. Film Critics uh, Association, and uh, notoriously or, or uh, famously or infamously, uh, however you want to use, whatever adverb you would use to describe it, your tenure there, but uh, that's where you uh, engineered the victory by Brazil, a movie that had not even been released. <laughs> Not if that's true. <laughs> well, it was actually. I, I think Bob Osborne was the president that year because I remember we had a we had this meeting. The the, the awards meeting was in the Beverly Hills Gun Club. I always loved that. Uh, and uh, so shots were fired all volleys all over the room that day. It was a good year because there was uh, out of Africa. There was Pritzi's honor and um, um, back to oh, I can't remember what else, but. Oh, I, so, Universal Pictures had Out of Africa and Pritzi's Honor and Brazil. And, of course, now Universal Pictures had been at war with Terry Gilliam with Brazil, and uh, I covered that uh, you know, the L.A. Times to the point where we actually got together. I don't know if any of this is of interest to you, but um, the producer, uh, Bob Radnitz, was a good friend of mine. And he and I engineered private screenings. We had three private screenings in the basement of uh, the Thalberg building at MGM and brought all the critics of the LA film critics in to see it. And so then we were having this meeting. You know, at that moment, the, the studio was editing a happy version of Brazil and that they planned to release. And uh, so it, we had them, when we got together in the Beverly Hills Gun Club, there was this a couple of the critics came up to me before and said, we're going to make a play for Brazil. 
are you with us? And I said, sure. And uh, so we got in there, and it was kind of, there were a lot of questions, you know, can you really vote for this movie that's not been opened and anywhere, and so and so And so they asked me to make give a little speech about it, you know, and I point then, and always was your critic, you saw a movie, <laughs> you should favor whatever you want about it. Sure. And uh, so they voted for it. It won Best pick. It won uh yeah, best one picture, picture, best screenplay. It forced Universal to not tinker with the, not mess with it. Yeah. Oh yeah, they released it like the next week, and yeah, uh, yeah so that was quite a, yeah, that was fun. It was, you know, that was yeah. Kenny Turan once said that, you know, I had him on a television show, and he said that was the singular moment that where critics proved that they could have, the, they had a role wow. in movies. Yeah. It, you know, there's that's one you could point to and say that changed. That movie's fate. <laughs> and, well, Ellie's uh, film critics, of course, did that with Rocky. There's no way Rocky would have gone on to Best Picture at the Oscars. I think they also played that role with Unforgiven. That was another Best Picture choice, I think, that helped put it that on the Oscar map. I don't know about that one. I mean, I think Unforgiven's a great movie, and I thought when I saw it, I thought it was a, a serious Oscar contender. Uh, the only thing that held it back was the fact that it was a Western and didn't think it was going to win. But as it, you know, that season wore on, though, it was. You know, the reviews were fantastic on that movie. And uh, a great cast. That was, uh, that's a classic. I mean, that is a movie that came out of that that's definitely a classic. And, it, you know, almost everything about it was perfect. But it was another movie that year was The Player, which was. Uh, oh, right. That, and that one, National Society or something. There's some yeah. story, I may be remembering it wrong, but I, I. It goes something like this, and that is after. Uh, Unforgiven one best picture at the L.A. film critics. Uh, somebody left a message on Clint Eastwood's answering machine, and he just kept playing it back and over and over again, going, "Huh? What? I Unforgiven one best picture? Huh?" <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> funny. That a Western, you know, especially a snooty film critic. <laughs> you know, I knew I knew Clint pretty well, and and. Um, I he gave me the break on Unforgiven when he was going to make it, you know. And oh. he, we talked on the phone, and he told me what he was going to do next, and he had the script and told me who the cast was. Although he hadn't, he could, he told told me that uh, now I, I always block his name, the Englishman who played English Bob. Um, oh, comes a horseman. Anyway, he. Um, he couldn't give me that on the record because he hadn't signed yet. But I had Hackman and had all the other elements of it. And I interviewed David Webb Peoples, who wrote that wonderful script. And I put it in a short story at the back of the calendar, Sunday calendar section. The editor put the headline on it was, How Do You Say Make My Day in Cowboy? No, yes, it's Yippee-I-A-Kayo, How Do You Say Make My Day in Cowboy? And I got a call from Clint the next morning, and he was so pissed about that headline. God, he says, when am I ever going to live past that? I'll get over that. But uh, he couldn't, you know. He he had to finally come to grips with it because, yeah, you know, you've got the 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 Pebble Beach ter- uh, golf tournament that he was always involved in. There were people flying planes with the streamer saying, "Make my day," and then a telephone number from some girl. Ooh! <laughs> wow, how cool is that? <laughs> uh, what's what, looking back at the uh, Oscars? Let's stay there for a second. Uh, what are your favorite? Wins. I mean, uh, mine would be. I'm a big Lion and Winter fan, so I would go like for Hepburn's fourth Oscar, third Oscar. She won fourth. When you look back, what are the ones you go? Yeah, that I really love that result. So you think about this year? No, just historically. Oh, I absolutely. I think Slumdog Dog Millionaire is my favorite Best Picture winner ever. Period. Really? It's a movie that 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 crystallizes so profoundly the two core quests of, of, of being human, and that is the love and the riches. And it, it, it matches them both in a really jarring story. Anyway, what would your equivalence be? Um, well, the, clearly, the, the I think the moment that thrilled me most was when Anthony Hopkins won for Silence of the Lambs. Mm. You know, I didn't... Uh, I was at that Oscar show. I, they invited me to... I was in New York then, but they invited me to the show, and I went and uh, sat in the audience. It was a great, great show to be at. That was the night that uh, Billy Crystal was hosting. It was the night Jack Palance did his one-arm push-ups. And 
anyway, I did, you know, everybody was telling me, Ann Thompson said, you can take this to the bank. Nick Nolte is going to win for Prince of Tides. She wasn't alone yeah. with that thought. <laughs> so I put it, I put it down on my my ballot when I wrote it. But I was rooting against myself and Nick because I really, really wanted Hopkins to win. I thought it was, I just thought it was such a perfect performance. I mean, just searing. But it, it. anyone who doesn't, every Oscarologist listening to this uh, conversation knows that it, it is one, certainly one of the shortest lead performances ever. I think it's 22 or 24 minutes long. So I think that's why everybody yeah. underestimated it, right? But it's certainly had a much larger emotional and, and dramatic impact than its time stamp in the movie. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think as far as movies are concerned, I look back even before I was a critic, I think The Sting may have been my the one that I rooted hardest for. I, I, think, I, I have said many, many times that I've written it that I think that's the, most, that's the best screenplay um, wow. that's ever been written for a Hollywood movie. Um, wow. It's just perfect. And I watch it over and over and think of all the many twists and turns and subplots and everything else that movie has, and it all comes to this absolutely spectacular, perfect ending. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, my my best friend, my other Oscar buddy, he was just all over um, um, what's the horror movie? <laughs> and for blocking on this one too, but it was up that year with the um, uh, you know the Omen, the previous the Omen. But anyway, it was uh, he was really angry that the Sting had won. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it was so it was so commercial. That uh, uh, the snobs uh, would would prefer something something else. The Oscars used to be much more commercial this year. The whole this business of the popular film I think shamed the Oscar voters into you know, paying attention to the big big movies like Black Panther and and even to some extent Bohemian Rhapsody to overlook the, the quote unquote controversies about it, etc. But in the old days, we know because we paid attention and we lived through it. The Oscars. Uh, Commonly embraced at least with nominations those those big movies, Towering Inferno, Airport were nominated for Best Picture, Jaws. I mean, in a way, it's almost unthinkable that they that those would be and they were all contending as serious potential winners. None of them did. Yeah. But. Well, just few. Mad Max Fury, what just three or four years ago was up there, and I would never you would have never thought that was going to get nominated. And I don't think it would have without the preferential ballot. But, uh, yeah, it was. But, you know, those movies were, they they were the it movies of the time. And they weren't, you know, we can't, can't equate them to the popcorn movies of today. There's all CGI and the Marvel and this and that. Because um, those movies had a, a wide range of audience uh, interest. You know, they were, parents take their kids to those movies. They, everybody would have a good time. Yeah. Um, but, you know. I once you, asked Ron Howard what happened. Uh, we were standing in the corner of this cocktail party in Time Warner Center in New York, and uh, we were stuck uh, having this really fun Oscar conversation that everyone was hanging on to. But, of course, uh, uh, Ron Howard, with his storied uh, heritage in, in, in Hollywood, has such an interesting, unique point of view on it all. And, boy, he nailed it. He said, uh, I said, well, what, what happened? Why, why are those movies shunned now? And, uh, uh, and they automatically go for the art house movies. And he said, well, it was the VHS tape. He said, the minute as an Academy member, you know, I got that in the, uh, in the mail. He said, I, uh, I, I actually watched those movies. He said, before they didn't get nominated because it would have entailed, uh, a lazy, indulgent, pampered, he didn't say this, that's me saying, you know, Academy voter, one of these, you know, pampered Hollywood types, getting in their car yeah. and crossing town to see a movie that, uh, the audience has shunned. But still, sometimes, the art movie one. I'm, I'm thinking of Maggie Smith with the prime of Miss Jean Brody. I asked Jane Fonda a few years ago, I said, uh, what is the movie you should have won the Oscar for that uh, you didn't? And, you know, that, that and I, my answer to that would be, they shoot horses, don't they? And she got yeah. so upset with me, and she said, no! She says, don't you realize if I had won to that, Maggie Smith would have lost to one of the greatest performances <laughs> ever on film? No! <laughs> she came right at me. Uh, and it was like, wow! But there are exceptions you know, that the underdog broke through at the Oscars, but those were rare, of course. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I always try to think like uh, – I, mean, I tried to think like actors because they have such a big voice in the outcomes. Yeah. 
And uh, I remember sitting behind Her- Harold Hamlin at the premiere screening of My Left Foot. And I could see, I could read the back of his neck when he was watching uh, Daniel Day-Lewis's performance. And I knew what he was thinking was, I couldn't do that. That is amazing. And so you think about, when I look at these performances, I look at Christian Bale, for instance, even though I think Vice is a terrible movie. I think Christian Bale's performance is unbelievable. I mean, he he looks like Cheney, he sounds like Cheney. Only problem is he's not as evil as Cheney. But, uh, yeah, so, and I think that performance is much stronger than Rami Malek's. I think Rami Malek is fine. I just, you know, anybody who's watched the actual Live Aid uh, Queen uh, performance Mm -hmm. and then see this, this, you know, foot-by-foot reproduction of it in the movie, would see that it's just an impersonation and it's not that, you know, I mean, boy, Freddie Mercury had a presence that few people have. Yeah. In uh, in one stage, and you can't really m- mimic that perfectly. And I don't. I think Malik is good. I don't take anything away from him. I'm sure he's going to win the Oscar. But I love the movie. I love his performance. But I know what you're saying. Yeah. No, he, yeah, he's very so, good. So just, uh, you've got you. It's clear to me, Jack, that you've absolutely ripped off shamelessly all of my Oscar predictions. You and I agree on a lot of things. We've got Army. <laughs> we've got Mahershala Ali. We've got uh, uh, Regina King. Uh, you and I, frankly, are very boring. Uh, the Oscars never go according to script. So, where's the surprise going to come from? I don't know. If, I don't think any. I don't think there's going to be any surprise in the acting. I mean, I, I mean, there could be, but it certainly looks. I think that if there's a surprise in the acting, it's going to be in the supporting actress. I, I yeah, uh, Rachel Weisz might come through, or even Marina. For if Roman yeah. so big and important, and carries a sweet vote, then Marina could. Yeah, win. I don't think it'll be a clan, Yeah. I'd be a little surprised if she won, but oh, I mean, real surprised. So that one there, but I think Mahershal Ali is deadlock, Lynn Close to deadlock, yeah, and Malik is pretty close to a deadlock. I mean, Vice. If Vice had been a better movie, I think Dale would have would have won. But did you like Vice? I can't remember. Do you agree that Rachel Vice is uh, could really almost? I mean, that that she after winning BAFTA proved her strength. I don't think. Her win at BAFTA was just, oh, that's the British movie, so therefore the British voters went for her. When I saw The Favorite uh, on the Fox lot, initially when they were screening it before its release, uh, I was sitting next to Kevin Pillowy at uh, your old buddy, your old boss from AOL, and uh, we were watching it, and, and I, it was a mutual surprise at the end of the movie that, that you know, it, it starts the first hour, Rachel Weisz owns the whole thing, and you think, well, what's all the I keep hearing about Olivia Coleman, though, you know, and that, of course, unfolds in the second half. But also, uh, Rachel Weisz has a physical transformation. We won't spoil what happens to her, but, boy, it's a big, big performance. Well, it is, you know, and I, I wrote about this in one of my pieces earlier that I, you know, it's some of these this ballot fraud where they put the studio yeah. splits people up and, you know, and they, yeah. I, I dislike it because it, take, it takes a, an award away from somebody that really did a supporting performance. I don't think you can say that. I mean, Rachel Weisz is on that screen as often as Olivia Coleman. Or more. She's more or more. Than and I think. I, so how did that? I don't know how they came to that decision. Uh, because I think uh, Rachel Weisz and Emma uh, Stone do cancel each other out a bit, and um, so that's probably why uh, Regina King will win. But I. <clears throat> I, you know, I'm with you. I think Rachel Weisz is one of the best performers of the year. And if she'd been in the best actress category, who knows? You know, the thing about going close, I'm not quite sure. This is an odd, you know, I did about how few people win the award when they have the only nomination for a Oh, film. yeah, yeah. But I mean, that, with the overdue actors like Julianne Moore and Christopher Plummer, their movies only had one nomination. I think that, that exists by a separate set of rules. Normally, yeah. usually, yes. But don't you think, Jack, and let's talk about this because uh, this is a real awardsologist discussion, and that is, and we talked about this many times, where your acceptance speech at the Golden Globes is your Oscar audition. You know, right. Jamie Foxx, Hilary Swank come to mind as people who just wowed the audience at the Globes, and yep. their Oscar victory was inevitable. And I think if Glenn Close had just won and smiled and said thank you and sat down and 
and, and right. did not just drop a nuclear bomb on that place uh, and stole the whole show and gave the performance of her life in an acceptance speech, which is what you're supposed to do. And right. Know, but that changed everything, didn't it? I mean, that lasted. I, well, it certainly cemented it, I think. Um, she had a lot of support going in, but the movie, of course, it wasn't seen by many people. Um, but I don't, you know, I don't tend to think these never gotten one before, so she get one now kind of thing. Sometimes yeah. it happened with Paul Newman. Look, Paul Newman had made a got a raft of fabulous movies, and great performances, and he, did, you know, had six nominations or so before he got the the win. Um, so that was, and he did, and he got it for the color of money, for God's sakes. He didn't even go to accept it because you remember his quote to the AP that year. uh, They said, well, why aren't you going to go? Everyone said you're going to win. And he said, you know, it's a lot like courtship. When you've been chasing a lady for so long and she finally stops and turns around and says to you, okay, uh, I say, I I don't care anymore. Goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think they blew their, well, they, they shot their wad by giving him the honorary word like the year before. And it seemed anticlimactic they come back and win yeah. the actual Oscar. So that was a, the the rare thing I think. So I don't know that Glenn Close is owed an Oscar for I, you know I don't think her career stacks up that Paul Newman's or anybody. But um, um, yeah, that speech was fabulous, and we want to hear it again. That's when I say about the audition. And those people are watching that show and they hear somebody give a speech like that, and, they, and then they're looking ahead to the Oscars and say, Yeah, I'd like to hear something like that again. Yeah. yeah, that's uh, yeah. It was. Crazy. Do you agree that if Olivia Coleman had stayed in supporting, she would be winning there now? I do. Yeah, I do. Too. I do. Yeah. yeah, I think she's going to. Yeah. And I think if Rachel Weisz had been a best actor. Well, they just have that problem. What are they going to do? They have three leads. Yeah, no, no, they, they, they can't. Rachel Weisz can still win in supporting because uh, Regina King movie hasn't uh, gotten the, the Beale Street is ahead now for music score among the experts and, and Gold Derby and. And so it's it's a strong contender in one other category, but uh, it did not get nominated for Best Picture. I, I, I'm pretty sure, based on our um, uh, analytics at Gold Derby, that it was probably in that number nine position when only eight yeah. nominees were released for Best Picture. But uh, yeah, that, I think yeah, I, I you know this, this that's the the real enigma to me this year is that I think if Bill Street could talk is like the Oscar movie. I mean, it's, it seems like it's got Oscar credentials written all over it. And from the beginning, you know, from the not Jane Baldwin novel and Barry Jenkins, the past winner, and cast and everything else, I thought, wow, this is going to... And I saw it. I thought I was blown away. I thought it was just a fabulous movie. And it's got no, hardly any interest. And uh, But, yeah, you, it would have been down there in, in the last segment. But it's a better movie than three or four of these that are nominated. How strong do you feel about your screenplay predictions? You've well, got Black Klansman and the favorite, as I do. I'm pretty sure you got those, right? Yeah, that's what I have, and I don't. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not second guessing myself on on either of those. I think, uh, well, especially if they win the WGA Awards Sunday, I think yeah, they'll go right on and get the Oscars too. Um, this is the place Kate where you. As a rule of predicting the screenplay categories, he said that in general, the uh, you know, the nominee with like one. Uh, the movie was like one nominee. If you're, like Spike Lee, there's, there's, there's like there's three, uh, there's three co-authors there, and um, or four, or whatever it is. And, and uh, some movies just have one. I don't think that matters in Spike's case because the writing categories are among the few where the the nominees, the people are actually on the ballot. That doesn't happen below the line. You know, it's right. just for visual effects and all these others. It's just the end of the movie, including for song, which. Uh, Obviously, Lady Gaga is still going to probably win there for for best song, but they're not going to see her name next to the nomination slot on their ballot. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. I think that uh, this is the place where they can give Spike his long-awaited Oscar. I think they will. But yeah. that, you know, the favorite, um, which I think is a great screenplay, but I'm mm-hmm. just logically when I'm thinking through the Oscar, I think favorites up against Roma for screenplay, right? Yeah. Yeah, and Roma and, was largely improv, so um, I just it's, that. you know I don't know how you can look at Roma for what it specifically for what it is, which is a singular memory piece from yes, a series of impression, impressionistic. Uh, yeah. yeah, 
it does everything, you know, it does everything, he does everything but uh, act in it. And uh, so how do you deny it a screenplay? Because that's the blueprint for it. Um, but they will. I don't think it's going to win uh screenplay. Yeah. Uh, you've got it ahead, I think you do, for cinematography as I do. And, uh, some people think, <clears throat> well, that this is where the director is, is uh, being a buttinsky into these areas like cinematography and, and uh, film editing. Uh, in his, oh, no, actually, it wasn't nominated for cinema. It got snubbed in one of them. Um, it got snubbed in, uh, was it cinematography? Yes, I think so. Which one are you talking about, Roma? Uh, Roma, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, I think doing the job of, of operating the camera and editing, uh, taking theoretically taking a job away from from uh, somebody oh, else yeah. who would normally get it. Is that an issue, in other words, or no? I don't think so in this case. Um, I mean, I think it's just yeah. – yeah, I don't think so in this case. It's either they're going to go for them. But I feel that, um, um, that it's one of the most beautiful movies. from When I watched that movie, I thought, man, this is a good-looking movie. Um, mm-hmm. And I said in one of my pieces that it was like it, it was like he put you back in the 1970s, um, and it was shot in the 1970s on on location using modern film stock. That's what it looked like to me. Because mm-hmm. there's scenes where he's walking through Mexico City, and I don't know how they did that, you know, the green screen or whatever they did to put 1970s Mexico City behind him. Um, but it's they built seamless. Uh, we they they built whole streets that whole. Scene where the student uprising in Mexico City. That's, that's right, right. Well, I know they did that, but but there's one scene in particular that is a has that goes guys from blocks and blocks, if not miles, oh, yeah, with yeah. buildings and everything in the back, and it's real because they're, they're old cars and old um, sure. rail trains and everything going through it. So they got that from somewhere, and then they made it look like it was you know active with the mm-hmm. <laughs> with the other stuff. It's really. Really remarkable in that regard. So I think it's okay, that, final I think thought, that's Jeff, What do you think of no host for the Oscars? The uh, new, you know, uh, four categories being uh, edited down uh, during commercial break and seen. Um, are you skeptical of that? Glenn Weiss is the director of the fourth year of the Oscar show. He does that every year for the Tonys. It's very tastefully done. Everybody. Furious at first when the Tonys did it, and Glenn yeah. really handled it respectfully. What's your view of what we're going to see at the Oscars? Well, I don't mind not being having a host. I think unless you know, get somebody that's perfect, like Billy Crystal in his heyday, yeah, um, where he's really more entertainment than, than the rest of the show. <laughs> but uh, if you're just going to have someone like Kevin Hart or even Jimmy Kimmel or some of those other people that are going up there, they're going to do a monologue and then they're going to keep coming back. But um, then I think it's fine not to have a host, and uh, they, I'm sure they'll find a way. Gold Globes didn't have a host for most of their history. The SAG Awards didn't until recently. You don't really need one. Yeah, yeah, I don't think you need one. It depends on what they do with the production, you know, how they introduce everything in the beginning and so forth. I'm sure they'll be fine. The other part I think was a, a, a really, really bad mistake on their part to. to Cut into the, cut those, uh, put those people behind the screen, the commercial screen, uh, especially cinematography and film editing that are intrinsic to the production of a film. Yeah. And um, and they're getting heat for it. I thought they might even reverse their decision there because the outcry was so going to be so big. Well, but, think of the time they saved with no host. There's that first ten, fifteen minutes. Actually, in the case of Seth MacFarlane, I think his uh, intro uh, went on for twenty minutes. So they're saving that time, and and uh, what are they saving it for? Uh, there's, you know, and why do they have to trim elsewhere for that when you know they they are famous for these notoriously bad production numbers like we saw your boobies. You know, oh, that, 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 that why we're cutting the the actual awards is for more of that. We don't know. <laughs> they, uh, you know, way back in the high level, it's a little history with the. The show itself. I went back with uh, Samuel Goldwyn Jr. when he was producing, and I can't remember the year. I think it was 1990 um, that he was producing the show, and I had the interview with him, be- you know, before they even started the production. Mm-hmm. This when he was first announced, and we went through the thing about how you're going to get it down, you know, three and a half hours. It's always three and a half hours approximately. Now you're going to get down to three, which it's supposed to be, and 
you know, I asked him about the short films. There are a lot of people who talked about taking the short films into like the technical awards that are done separately. And he said he'd really like to do that, you know, and he was going to try to propose it to the board of governors. But he said, they can't quote me on that. I'll get killed. So <laughs> I wrote the column, and I wrote in, and I just I just said it on my own. I didn't quote it to him. I just said one of the ways they could cut that time is to take the short categories and put them somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And, oh, man, I, as I said in my piece, I had, I had more. I got bite marks on my ass for doing it because there were so many people mad at me. Sure. And uh, so I learned my lesson, and then Sam learned his because I ran into him at Cannes a couple years later, and he said, no, no, ten years later, and he brought that up and said that they blamed me, him for it anyway. <laughs> yeah. So he got he got burned by the board and uh, anyway. So the well, my view is, on this is the Oscars are the high holy event of of Hollywood and just like uh going to church, it's supposed to be boring and it's supposed to take forever and be squirm inducing and it's it's good for the soul. Uh a different way to look at it would be it's the Super Bowl show business and Okay, well, just like that other Super Bowl, it's supposed to be boring and and drag on for hours, giving everybody enough time to grab a beer, you know, hit the coleslaw, go to the bathroom, and talk to Uncle Larry, whatever. But uh, it's it's a group viewing experience. The Oscars are that um, is a tradition, and traditions. I mean, this is a really important tradition. It's not the MTV Video Awards, no. uh, and and the respect it should be shown historically. I think is the exception here. They're worried, of course, about going after 11 o'clock p.m. Um, and bumping into the local news affiliates uh, uh, nationally, which make a lot of money off ad sales during their news shows. And if you push the news, local news broadcast too late, uh, there goes that, that revenue for them. The Oscars already bring in more than $80 million in commercial money. Uh, so how much, <laughs> how greedy should they be? Should we allow it? But, of course, they're always driving for more and more profits. And I think this is the telltale year. Um, uh, The nerve of them doing this uh, is uh, heat's on. They better not screw this up. You know, here's a simple question I would raise. Why won't they just move the show up a half hour? I know. Start it on 4.30 instead of 5. And then it'll end at, you know, at 11. uh, Mm -hmm. I don't know the answer to that question. I've often thought of that, too. Especially when, you know, I was... For 12 years, part of those e-entertainment shows with Joan and Melissa Rivers, and and uh, when those pre-shows broke out, then the Oscars got very aggressive and, and muscled in there and said, "All right, we're doing our own pre-show with ABC," and and it knocked everybody else off the air yeah. that that half hour up before the show. And boy, that used to piss off Joan Rivers. No, that oh, he would be spitting nails behind the scenes. But um, uh, so they they claimed that half hour and they used it for red carpet. Well, why not move that? At half hour up another half, or no, then that would push people off the red carpet earlier, even it would piss, tick them off. But I, I don't know how to solve that, but they've got to, um, respect the show. Something has to, you know, okay, let's say it has to get down to, you know, get all that done. I don't think it's the length of time. I, I don't. I think it's that, what you said. I think it's going late on the, yeah. if a certain past midnight on the East Coast and, um, but I think people will watch it for three and a half hours. That's not the problem. The problem is that it's three and a half hours because they have 45 minutes of television commercials. <laughs> and uh, you say, why can't you get that in there? You know, it's 50, 24 <laughs> different categories, 24 acceptance speeches, uh, the obligatory memoriam, and um, what clips and the introductions to the movies and all these things. And so, yeah. So why don't you just knock off 15 minutes of the commercials and do it? But we know the answer to that. <laughs> That's the last thing they'll do, of course. So but funny. if they did move it up a half an hour, that wouldn't cause too much of a problem on the I red carpet. People that are interested in the red carpet, they're going to get up in the middle of the night to watch it. Um, mm-hmm. And so they're going to be there whatever the time is. But then they could just have that. They could do it and not worry about it. It gets, drives me crazy and my wife crazy. We watch the show, and somebody's giving a speech, and you really want to hear what they have to say, and then they start playing them off yeah and and then of course you know that those short film categories which are the ones i think should be done and if they're going to do any behind the curtain do those because those people nobody knows who they are 
And they're getting they're going up there and they're giving a speech, which you know it's their one big shot to have this great platform, and they deserve it. And and they are too auditioning for more work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but you can still show those. They said they you know they'll still show those speeches later. But they would take. Well, they claim and, they claim they're not going to edit them, but I and that will probably be true for this year. But they do it. They do edit them. I'm sure at the Tony's. Uh, they don't just cut out the walk to the stage by the winners, but. Um, the my complaint about the way the telecast handles these acceptance speeches is they tell all the nominees at the nominees lunch, which was last week. Uh, you only have 45 seconds, and you you know uh, don't thank everybody you know, on, on on their shopping list of people to thank. Make it memorable, make it dramatic, make it great, and they give this big wonderful pep talk. Of course, most of the nominees don't pay attention; they start right. they take off their list and bore it. But that damn orchestra, the playing off, as you're saying, that starts before their 45 seconds even, you know, uh, uh, they hit the 45 seconds, and they're pushing them off already. And um, that's just not right. They don't do that to the – they didn't do it to Julia Roberts when she stood up there and said, Mr. Orchestra Man, you put your baton down. I'm, I'm, yeah. You know, I, I'm going to be here for a while. They, they respect the actors and let them go on, but it's insulting when they – when they don't apply that same graciousness to film editor or the makeup I agree. And I think, you know, they should be able to come up with something. These people, these lists get longer and longer, you know. Um, these are, for, these are people lists. who make their business, uh, their, 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 their living as for putting on entertainment. Uh, they should have figured out this show by now. This is what they do for a living. <laughs> I know. Well, I can't, you know, I would say... They could do this. I mean, they could obviously could do this. All the nominees prepare a list of people they want to thank and give them to the Academy. Yeah, and have it run. Um, and they could run it as a stroll. Yeah. Well, they, you know, that would help. Because that, that's mm-hmm. the worst part of the show is the thank yous. I don't, I, you know, don't blame them for doing it and taking the opportunity to thank everybody. But it's, it, you know, that's dead air for the rest of us. And yes. that really adds to it. And they're they're going to keep doing that. I don't know that this whole idea of uh, radically changing the academy because of this slide in the ratings. It's you know there's so many other factors involved in it. All these other pre shows, people getting you know they got Oscar fatigue by the time the Oscars come on. Mm-hmm. And but can't do anything about all that. It's all money. No. And uh, we love to obsess about it. Thank you, Jack. Uh, uh, you know, obviously, keep your predictions updated. You're allowed to change your mind, as we all are. I know. At I, and I will. And I will. <laughs> uh, and uh, keep writing. More articles from you, the better. Okay. I, I'm loving it. I'm having more fun than I have in years. Oh, that's wonderful. We, we're having fun reading it. Thank you, right. Jack. We'll catch up later on the Derby track. Okay, Tom. Take care. Thanks. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.